do you know all the proofs of all the theorems that you use in all your papers? <laughs> These things are so phenomenally complicated that it's going to be quite some time before computers have checked them. And humans aren't going to stop and wait, right? Humans are an integral part of mathematics. I hadn't really understood this before. So, so off they go, gallivanting ahead with their, you know, with their extravagant ideas. Mathematics has always been a mess. I once met somebody at a party and they looked at me and went, you're the cheap storyteller guy, aren't you? <laughs> I've seen you telling stories on the Piccadilly line. I am that person, yeah. Welcome to Math Life Balance. Today, our guest is Kevin Bazard, a professor at Imperial College London, working in number theory and formal proof verifications. Welcome, Kevin. Welcome. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. <laughs> oh, it's a great pleasure. And I should apologize to the viewers. Unfortunately, I have a cold. That's why the horrible voice. But uh, the cap should compensate for the voice. <laughs> Let me start with an unusual question, Kevin. What's on your T-shirt? Oh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> today, that's a secret. You're not supposed to know that. I thought you couldn't see the T-shirt. Really? There you go. I, think... <laughs> I wear it to lectures sometimes. <laughs> so, okay, now I can start with the usual question, but right. brought you into mathematics. Uh, uh... What brought me to mathematics? I, I, I mean, I was unimaginative and I was good at it. I think that's how I ended up there. I, from, from an early age, I was quite, I, I was clearly quite able. I mean, not entirely clear why, kind of random. My, both my parents were teachers. Uh, my mother hated maths. My father uh, taught people to be mathematics teachers. <laughs> he worked at a teacher training college, so he obviously knew how to teach mathematics. And so when I got, you know, when it was clear that I was interested in it, he would teach me bits and bob. Then things went on and it became, you know, it became quite clear that I, was, I seemed to be, you know, way above average at mathematics and kind of average to below average at everything else. Uh, so mathematics was, you know, I, I was somehow forced into it in some sense. If being a professional mathematician wasn't actually a thing, then I imagine I would be somehow living under a bridge in a cardboard box somewhere. Uh, but still, yeah, but, but it turned out to be a thing. And so here I am. I, 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 as I say, it's just, I, I was unimaginative. I went to university and thought, what should I do now? You know, and then someone said, oh, do a PhD. So, yeah, I did that. And then what should I do now? Just keep, I kept doing the same thing. Uh, it's a yeah, dull answer, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, doesn't math require being imaginative? Yeah, yes. It, it, math requires you having a good understanding of a certain kind of picture, I think. Uh, and, and that picture might not necessarily be three-dimensional or two-dimensional, might not be the same, might not be what kind of regular people think of as a picture. It, I think you have to be able to think in a certain way uh, to be able to do mathematics. And also you have to... Yeah, you have to be imaginative about the very specific collection of things that we're supposed to be talking about. So, yeah, yes, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. You do have to be imaginative, uh, but only a very specific kind of imaginative that I seem to be able to get away with. <laughs> 
And more recently, I've been thinking more and more about what mathematics is and you know how people do it. And I think it's actually a really complicated question. You do you do have to be imaginative somehow, but you also have to have a maybe you don't, maybe you just have to have a clear understanding of the landscape. Maybe you just have to have a clear vision of the picture. Then you don't need to be imaginative. You can just you can you you can just observe what's there. <laughs> Who knows? Hmm. One thing I've learned in the last few years is that actually finding the right definitions is, is, is somehow a completely different art to finding the right theorems. So but part of the art of mathematics is, is finding the right definitions. Imagine you're just given a bunch of components and you've got to, you've got to put them together to make a tool. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, is, this is where the imagination comes in. If you really understand the components, then maybe you can put them together to make a to make a new tool that will now be able to you know open things that we couldn't open before or there's where part of the creativity comes in the way I, I now think of mathematics as a series of challenges you know you have to somehow scale the challenges and one way of scaling the challenges is by finding innovative routes you know up the mountain but other ways of you know other ways of getting there and making sort of powerful new tools and uh, I guess they're different kinds of creativity uh, and yeah maybe you need to have both interesting of course i have many questions related to formal proofs which is a new uh, thing for mathematicians uh, people only started talking a lot about it in the recent years right yeah we're taking the creativity out of mathematics <laughs> <laughs> that's right because <laughs> it's clearly nothing to do with being creative at all. So, so that's why computers would be perfect. <laughs> that's, that's your goal. No, I, I, th I think it's completely impossible. I think that uh, this is this is the hard, the, the easy part is uh, teaching the computer things that we know and understand well, because that's exactly the bit that the computer is good at. It's very good at checking you're following the rules. Uh, but if you want to prove the Riemann hypothesis or, you know, insert random open problem in mathematics, uh, then here's a thought experiment, right? Imagine, imagine for an hour or so you just knew all of mathematics, all of known mathematics, right? You, you just knew what everyone else knew. You were somehow some being that had, you know, sort of kind of captured every mathematical thought that had been had. And, uh, so now you knew you know what's known, and now you can look at what's not known. And now the question is, how much of what's not known is now going to be easy? Right? How how much how how much stuff is is just a case of the right experts coming along and talking about it in the right framework, and and how much of it needs genuinely new ideas that no human has ever had before? Yeah, I I I think this is an interesting question because once I once I was working on a theorem, and I started by talking to the experts and uh, discovering what all the background was. And, th and then I realized that given all the background, the theorem was very easy to prove. <laughs> Even though the, the community thought that it was somehow blocking progress, but actually when you talk to everyone, uh, it turned out that there, there were no obstructions. And so I wrote down the proof using no new ideas whatsoever and, uh, and uh, sent a brief summary of my ideas to... Richard Taylor and Ken Ribbit, who were uh, you know, both interested in the problem, and they both instantly responded, one saying, oh, I thought the problem was here, and the other one saying, oh, I thought the problem was there. 
So you see, sometimes you don't need any good new ideas to prove, you know, to make progress. You just have to know what's already known. So, you know, teaching, teaching a computer a bunch of mathematics, it might then, you know, know a lot of things that are already known. Uh, and maybe it can already make some progress. But I think for the hard questions, this is hopeless. So, yeah, I guess the, the basic question that probably everyone has when they hear about, I should not say every, sorry. So a basic question that I would have <laughs> when mm -hmm. I heard about formal proofs would be, um, so usually when there is a new technology introduced in any, uh, any job-related um, area, like manufacturers in England years, many years ago, uh, people get afraid that it's going to take their jobs. Mm -hmm. And often it's a very reasonable fear. So are you saying that mathematicians don't have a reason to be concerned about computers taking their jobs? Oh, not right now. Not in my, well, you, this depends on who you talk to. You talk to the AI people and they'll tell you that computers will be proving new theorems that humans couldn't prove within 10 years. I mean, you talk to some people, they'll say this is already happening. Uh, but the com computers right now are not proving theorems that people like you or I are interested in. They tend to be proving theorems in sort of niche areas uh, where there are very few axioms. You know, kind of take the axioms of a group and kind of drop associativity. And uh, now you have some rather unwieldy objects to, to work. You know, to, you have a, a, a very primitive, simple object, and computers might be able to prove theorems about that object. Uh, but I, th I think it will be a long time before computers really understand the kind of, you know, the complex technical objects that you or I think about you know, in our real-world research. I, I don't think we have anything to worry about yet. The, the AI people are extremely optimistic, and my personal opinion is that's because the AI people don't really know uh, what modern mathematics is, is, is actually about. I, I, I personally think that what will happen is that these computer tools uh, would eventually become helpful, because right now they're not even helpful. They're called, they're called proof assistants, so they're supposed to help mathematicians with their proofs, but right now all they do is impede them, right? It's, it's you know, all, all that happens is that I understand a proof on paper and I want to type it into a computer. And, uh, yeah, the, the, you know, it, it just takes 10 times as long because, you know, the, the computer's just stupid. I mean, this is the, they're dumb machines, right? This is the thing. So you, you give them pointers and eventually they get there. But uh, right now, from what I've seen, Computers won't be doing anything amazing anytime soon. I don't think. I don't think humans have got to fear for their job. I think just the opposite. I think humans should be looking forward to the time where they'll be able to use computers as a better tool. You know, many mathematicians use computers all the time to do computations, to do calculations. But here we are. Do you ever use computers in your work to to do to calculate? Right. You see. So there's there's many pure mathematicians who don't use computers because the thing that they're really good at, namely, you know, brute forcing doing a million calculations in a second or a billion calculations in a second, that might not be of any use to you because you're trying to prove theorems about infinitely many objects all at once. So there's no point checking it for a million of them because there's, you know, you've, you're 0% of the way through. So what I think will happen slowly is that computers will uh, be become more useful in ways that are actually quite difficult to predict, but uh, they're not going to be having the ideas. I mean, computers are very good at chess and Go and things like this, but... Who knows if they're having ideas? Chess and go a finite domain somehow. Is if you if you just try everything and one thing looks interesting, then can you honestly say you've had an idea? You know, if you're just smart and quick enough to try a million things, and then one thing turns out to be interesting, 
Did you have an idea or did you just brute force the problem? The problem with mathematics is it's infinitely big, right? The, the, in some sense, the birth of interesting mathematics is when you allow yourself to make the natural numbers, you know, an infinite set. That you, you, the natural numbers go on forever. This is one of the first things you learn at school. You can, you can always add one. At the moment you have an infinite object, then the entire, the entire picture changes. So computers have been very good at, you know, doing things like protein folding or whatever. But uh, how can, you know, how can they actually deal with the infinite? And it's not, I mean, let's, let's wait and see. I mean, you want to know what's really going on, right? I really rather like the idea of kind of playing computer games at work. That's what's actually happening. And so I just figured that if I could arrange it so that I could play computer games and yet convince my boss that I was doing something that could be called mathematics, you know, then, uh, you know, I've got a nice looking 15 years ahead of me before my retirement, right? Um, you mentioned in your lectures that uh, making students do um, formal verifications is like, uh, letting them play computer games and, and studying math at the same time. So I was wondering, do you think is there a way to add gamification to the process of doing the rest of math or it's only the formal proof? I regard every every pure mathematics question as a game now. Right? Every maths question is a puzzle game. And it, and it happens to be a puzzle game that I and you and many other people particularly like playing, right? It's, you know, it's kind of an addictive puzzle game, but, uh, and, you know, it's got lots of properties that me, you know, as I get older, my reactions are slower. So I like to have Zen puzzle games, you know, uh, puzzle games where you don't have to react quickly when something happens on the screen and you've got to press a button quick. Uh, so for me, you know, the Zen puzzle games are the nicest ones. And mathematics, it just turns out, is a gigantic Zen puzzle game of which there are many, many, many levels, some of which, you know, are trivial theorems we teach to undergraduates, some of which are interesting theorems, which is quite fun to run through the proof of, and some of which are just levels that no human can do and might be unsolvable, but, they, you know, they're probably not. It, it's, you, you've gamified all of it. That's, that's what I'm suggesting. You know, now the, the, really, I think what your question is really is: can we make it can we make it more fun to play those games, right? And and different people find different things fun. I personally find, you know, the the tools that we have already, uh, I already I already find that that's you know quite enough fun as far as I'm concerned. I'd I'd quite happily spend all day proving theorems in a theorem prover uh, because. Already it's fun. I mean, why why is that not good enough? And I and I sit and do that in front of the students, and some of them see it's fun as well, you know, whereas others want to play different kinds of computer games. Now, I teach using this stuff now, right? You know, I've had some sort of revolution in the in the in the last few years. I've managed to wangle it so that so that I can use computer proof systems in my undergraduate teaching. Do you think it would will affect the passions and tastes in mathematics, which are uh, surprisingly important, I think, in math. So math is considered to be this, the most objective thing in the world, and yet I think it's vastly influenced by uh, taste and passion. And you also mentioned this in the lecture, so I was happy about somebody agreeing with me on that. Uh, so do you think that would change? Or No, because I think it's humans that are driving that. I mean, consider something that won't happen, right? Consider 
consider that, you know, eventually humanity builds a machine that can somehow solve every solvable question, you know, in some, in some sort of, you know, this is almost a meaningless, a meaningless hypothesis. But imagine if computers really did become better than humans at mathematics, something which I suspect, you know, we're not going to see. Uh, I think that that won't stop humans doing mathematics, they will invent new structures and come up with new questions. This is just ridiculous. It's not going to happen, right? Computer, we're not going to be in a situation. I mean, okay, there, okay, okay. There, there's the, the, the revolution isn't going to happen. What, what's fashionable in mathematics is being led by humans. This was something that I has really been as, as I didn't notice this when I was hanging out with the fashionable crowd, you know, for, for the first 20 years of my research career. I was an algebraic number theorist doing the Langlands philosophy, you know, which is some fancy, fancy sounding, you know, branch of number theory. And, you know, it's, it spans number theory and various other things as well. And, uh, and I could see that, you know, people I knew were getting Fields medals and uh, Arbel prizes. And, and this was because, you know, for me at the time, it was just because I'd chosen the right kind of mathematics to do, you know, the obviously interesting kind of mathematics. But over the last few years, as I've started, you know, in some sense, broadening uh, what I do, and, you know, I've become interested in sort of all pure mathematics, and in particular, how one teaches all pure mathematics to a computer. And I spent a lot more time talking to, you know, the outcasts, in some sense, the people doing sort of set theory and, and, uh, and sort of combinatorics and foundational questions. Uh, and, and none of the people in this crowd have sort of got Fields medals. That You know, the, the, they're just because Fields medals don't, you know, you don't get Fields medals for doing set theory somehow. And why is that? Is that because, I mean, you know, in, you could imagine some parallel universe where that, where that somehow wasn't happening. Uh, one thing's for sure, humans are making decisions about what kind of pure mathematics is being funded. Uh, because, you know, I'm part of the machine that makes those decisions. I get sent grant proposals and I'm asked yes or no. Uh, so there is some sort of, you know, it, it's, it's, it's human-led, right? It's nothing to do with computers. And humans like, you know, they like the smell of areas that look like they're promising. But, you know, how do you know if something's promising? Maybe to a certain extent, this is a cultural thing. Maybe, you know, a bunch of people on the Fields Medal Committee think that this is kind of going in the right direction. And, you know, if there aren't any people in some area on these committees, then these people are going to struggle. As I say, I've spent a lot of, spent a lot of the last few years talking to all kinds of people, doing all kinds of mathematics that would not be regarded as fashionable. And, and yet it turns out that some of it's quite important uh, for the things I'm doing you know, doing mathematics on a computer, because we're attempting to do fashionable mathematics on a computer. This is this is what the noise is about, really. We're trying to... The, these computer proof systems have been around for decades. They've been be controlled by computer scientists, and they've been being steered towards areas of mathematics, you know, which, which computer scientists think, think are feasible to do with these machines. And I think that was the wrong approach. I think that the correct approach is to steer it directly you know, 21st century modern fashionable mathematics, and uh, to see to see what they do then. That's that's you know that's what's not happened before. But at the end of the day, I I wasn't you know it, the computer wasn't saying which way it was going. I'm steering it right. It's humans are 
an integral part of mathematics. I hadn't really understood this before. Humans, humans say which way it goes by, by, by controlling where the money goes and, you know, controlling who gets the jobs. And, and you, trust, you trust humans to be taking it in the right direction. So I was also wondering about that. Like you mentioned in your lectures that uh, computers are arguably a better way to check proofs than the appeal to authority, which has been used for centuries. That you know, some people we trust said it's true, so uh, it must be true. And it works though, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I was wondering even if like proof checking would be um, done with computers, still the whole system of the way math community works is built on the appeal to authorities, uh, as you said. Um, so that couldn't be changed, could it? Right now, if you look at the kind of things that you or I rely on in our research work, these things are so phenomenally complicated that it's going to be quite some time before computers have checked them. And humans aren't going to stop and wait, right? It's, it's not impossible to imagine a future in sort of 50 years' time where people are being paid to kind of to, to type up basic foundational mathematics into a computer to, to make sure it's all there. To, you, know, to, you, you can imagine that at some point mathematical society will decide that actually this is important to you know, make sure that all the I's and the, you know, the I's have been dotted and the T's have been crossed. Uh, and it's not good enough to just rely on you know, a, a, a panel of possibly elderly experts who claim that they checked every last detail 25 years ago. It's, but on the other hand, this, the, the issue is the system we have, it's worked for thousands of years, right? It's, it's, and it's made, you know, we have, now we have sort of a, a, a solid foundation for it and people can write textbooks and make sure that everything is, you know, everything is correct. It's, people know how to think about mathematics and they know, mathematicians have got a very good sense of smell, right? If something doesn't look right, you know, you've seen this in a seminar. Somebody says something that's a bit dodgy, and all of a sudden, there's an expert putting his hands up, ask, you know, asking very pertinent questions, or asking how this, you know, how this, how this claim can fit with some. You know, mathematicians have a picture of what mathematics looks like, and if someone comes along and says something which isn't compatible with their picture, then, then this this needs to be resolved, right? This has certainly happened to me in seminars. Someone says something, I think, well, that can't be true because that. That's not my model of what's happening in the talk. And so then you ask a question and then somebody says something and all of a sudden you understand, you know, your eyes are, there was, there was some subtlety you hadn't seen or, you know, or the speaker had just made a mistake or, you know, I was, I was thinking of a degenerate example which the speaker had forgotten to rule out or something. You know, you have a, a picture of what your area looks like, you know, a very precise picture. And that enables you to communicate with people at a very high level but these other people have also got pictures. And you can't write down these pictures, right? You can't, I can't download my brain and say, well, there it is. You know, that's how I think of elliptic curves and modular forms. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's these neurons here on the table. It's not how it works. I, but I have got some, some kind of picture as to what a modular form is and what, it, what a modular form does. And if you ask me a random question about it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have an opinion at some point in my life, I was a world expert at something, you know, the Piadic Langlands philosophy or something. And, you know, then you're reading papers by other people and some of them are fine and some of them are less fine and some of them people are doing things in kind of bad ways. And 
you start making some kind of you you start deciding who you're going to trust when you talk to people and then what about if someone that you don't trust is saying something that's true this this for me was why doing mathematics became more and more difficult doing research mathematics because i work in an area where you you have a huge you know you need to take on a huge amount on trust and it got to the point where i didn't trust it anymore <laughs> but i don't think computers are going to say I, I don't think computers are the answer unfortunately i think working harder is the answer and get, getting a better picture i don't think there's any easy fix for this so i i moved into computers because i thought they might help with this issue uh but i, I don't think they're going to help at all i think they're going to help in other ways do you do do you do you know all the proofs of all the theorems that you use in all your papers? <laughs> <laughs> I try to know all the proofs in my papers. Aha, uh -huh, I see. The proofs that you wrote. But what about the things you assume? Oh, well. <laughs> is, this, is this a problem? It's, it's, it's the way that some of us have to work. I, I've asked my advisor about it and... He would say, he said that um, usually the practice is such that some statements may be incorrect, but people don't use them. Or if oh. you do use some statements, then like the more useful the statement is, the more people look through the proof, the more likely it is that the mistake will be. I see. So you're basically saying that the literature contains false statements, but that it doesn't matter. Great. I'm not, I'm, that's, that's where we find ourselves in 2021. And in, in 2017, I was extremely angry about that. I thought that that was not, I mean, <laughs> mathematics is supposed to be this beautiful, perfect thing, right? This is, this is the other thing. Why do we do mathematics? Because it's beautiful, right? We're attracted to it. We're attracted to it because it's beautiful. And now where is the beauty in mathematics? And this is, you know, math, mathematicians will often agree that mathematics is beautiful. But if you try and work out where the beauty is, then different mathematicians might have different opinions. Like for some people, the, the beauty might be in seeing all the steps of some, you know, intricate proof all sort of fitting together and, you know, all the lemmas, all the details of all the lemmas. But other people might, might see the beauty in the big overview and, you know, the big picture and, you know, hang the details. And for me, you see, I mean, the other thing about mathematics, the other thing about pure mathematics at least is that, you know, there's this big secret. In fact, the vast majority of it is not going to be of any use to anyone, right? You know, this is how, you know, we sell it. You say, oh, I do number theory. And of course, without number theory, you wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to encrypt our credit cards on the internet, right? But And that is true, but that was just a very small bit of number theory did that bit, right? And there's all, and there's kind of, there's huge other bits that, that is very, you know, the pictures are very appealing and sometimes gigantic, you know, my, the Langlands philosophy might have applications in physics and number theory and representation theory and you know harmonic analysis and goodness knows what else. But it's is it going to do things? It's it, these the, somehow for some people it doesn't matter if bits of it are a bit wrong because you know it's all about the big picture. Whereas for me, if it's really if we if we if we start at a point where we're saying you know my research might never be useful. Right, it might, I mean, it might be to to real world applications. Right, I prove theorems about modular forms, uh, and they might never be used in a real world application. And so, 
if they're not 100% correct, then for me, they're almost worthless, right? This is, you know, I, I, I'm losing track of where the beauty is at this point. If it's not useful, and if it's not absolutely correct, then, then it's, it might be spurious. And so I got very interested in, you know, whether my papers were all actually 100% correct, including all the things I was uh, appealing to, because I appeal to all manner of things that I don't understand at all. It's just, it's just the nature of it. My, my advisor taught me to do that. You see, this, my advisor is a genius, unfortunately, Richard Taylor. And so <laughs> and, and this, this causes problems because you kind of say, well, you know, I haven't read this proof of this theorem of Deline. And his response basically says, I mean, he says, well, you know, maybe you could just assume it for now. But somehow in brackets, he's saying, but, you know, I've read it and it's fine. Right. This is, you know, I, I've checked it and you can trust me. Mathematics has got bigger than this one brain barrier now. Right. This is this is somehow what's happened. You know, 100 years ago, you could argue that there were people that knew all of pure, you know, did Poincaré know essentially all of mathematics? Uh but nowadays, you can't find people that know all of an area. Uh, it's, 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 mathematics has got astoundingly big. This Wait, is... Kevin, I'm confused. So do I rightly understand that in the last four years, you became more pessimistic about uh, formal proofs as a help to check modern mathematics? Here's, this, here's a very simple question. When are we going to see a computer-checked proof of Fermat's last theorem? Right? That's because maybe Fermat's last theorem isn't right, right? You know, that's you talk. I've talked to some people who say that. I've talked to computer scientists. You know, maybe it's wrong because because you know because humans are inaccurate. Here's a maths paper with a mistake in. Therefore, some maths papers have mistakes in. Therefore, the Wiles Taylor proof of Fermat's last theorem might have mistakes in. You, see, you, you, you I've met people that think like this. So this is nonsense, right? Of course, there's no mistake. In the proof of Fermat's last theorem, because it was it's important, it's been generalized out the park. And uh and furthermore, the proof is extremely long. And so, how are we going to teach a computer this proof? I don't think we are, right? I mean, we can make a start. Give me a hundred million pounds, and I could definitely get you Fermat's last theorem in a computer proof checker. Yeah, you know, because it will just take a lot of people, you know, well over a decade to do it. You know, you'd need a huge team of people that would, you know, have to give up their research life and, you know, and just become just become people that type type proofs of well-known things into a computer. And then what would we have at the end of it? We would have something that nobody would be interested in, right? Because the pure mathematicians all knew it was true. And, uh, you know, the computer scientists might be excited about it, but, you know, it, it, it's some kind of an achievement, right? It, it's a technical achievement, but it doesn't tell us anything about mathematics. One thing I learned, you know, when I stopped talking to algebraic number theorists and started talking to a much broader group of people, you know, for example, philosophers of mathematics, uh, one of the things I learned was that it's always been like this. <laughs> mathematics has always been in a mess, but it's inevitable because it's, you know, because it's run by humans, you know, it's run by men, right? <laughs> so... So, so off they go, gallivanting ahead with their, you know, with their extravagant ideas. Mathematics has always been a mess. There's always been things which have been unclear, and you know, but the thing is, after a while, the dust settles, and people come up with better ways of doing things, and simpler, you know, things get simplified, 
And uh, then you can see that the things that people, you know, the insights that people had had, even if they were giving incorrect justifications for them or, you know, or incomplete justifications of them, it, it sort of, things turned out to be right in the end. Kevin, let's talk about you. Oh. <laughs> Enough about formal proofs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you've had quite enough. Yeah, we could just cut, we could cut all that part. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for example, when you, so when you changed, well, one can say changed the field, you, you said that your colleagues thought you were uh, mad about doing it or something. Like, was it for you personally an issue that people didn't quite approve? No, because I've spent my entire life not really caring what other people think of me. How, how do you do that? <laughs> it's... I mean, I mean, <laughs> because when you you're brought up in a small village somewhere and you're sufficiently different to everybody else, that after a while you just decide it's just easier not to have any friends and not to care what anyone else thinks. <laughs> and if that happens to you at an early age, <laughs> wait, in then, villages, usually people care much more about the opinion of the neighbors because it's more important, isn't it? I, yeah, I long stopped caring what other people think of me, and I think this has turned, in, in some sense, this has turned into a superpower. It's meant that I can live my life with a certain amount of, you know, carefreeness. I, it's, yeah, I was, you know, I had a lot of, yeah, there was a lot of name calling and bullying and all sorts of things, but you know, when I was this misfit as a child, uh, and so. You know, then after a while, you just think, well, I'll just, you know, I'll stick to what I'm good at. And, uh, you know, I'll have a close group of you know, friends and confidence. But, you know, generally, I won't be particularly extrovert. And I'll just get on with doing what I'm doing. And, you know, who cares what other people think? And that just means that, you know, it's, it's yeah, I've done all manner of kind of stupid things in public. And it's a, it's much easier to do once you realise that, you don't really care what other people think. I mean, to be honest, I wouldn't like to be cancelled, right? If I say a few dumb things on Twitter and then all of a sudden, you know, Kevin Buzzard is clearly not a right-thinking person, so let's, you know, let's, you know, let's be nasty to him. I am careful about that. I'm careful about what I say on Twitter. But in general, you know, in my career, some of my colleagues thought I was a bit crazy, but... My employer, and all I found from Imperial College London, uh, was a deep desire to um, to support me because they really liked the idea of uh, doing something innovative. And I did give some talks around that time, 2018, 2019, where I just ended up sort of having big arguments with people afterwards because I would meet people that had such a different view of my own about, you know, where mathematics should be going. And, you know, at, at the time I was very concerned that, if bits of maths were wrong, that made them invalid. Whereas, whereas some people, you know, didn't think this at all. So, so I, you know, I was having kind of weirder interactions with other people, you know, when I was, I was making very blasé assertions about the state of our subject. Uh, but all that happened from Imperial was that they gave me funding, you know, they gave me funding to fund undergraduates, you know, summer projects, they gave me funding to run a conference they you know they they gave me funding for a postdoc and you see if that's happening 
then you know you're all right, right? Then it doesn't matter if your friends think you're crazy. It just might mean you need to go and get some new friends or something. Uh, or it just might mean you have to sort of wait a bit until your friends realise that what you're doing is interesting. So it has never stopped you, like people's opinion has never stopped you from doing things you want to? No. I, I, this is supposed to be about math-life balance, right? I, I, I thought I was going to spend my entire time talking about my children. Yeah, okay. Because... I was, oh, I can ask you about your children. But in the previous interviews, I did ask people who have children, like, how do you do math and have children? And they were like, I don't know. It's hard. I have no suggestions. The reason I mentioned them was because, I mean, you have children and your life changes, right? Because, you know, now things are different. And one of the practical ways in which my life changed was that I used to go to work on the subway in London, you know, and I'd sit reading a book or whatever, writing a lecture. But now, all of a sudden, I would go to work on the subway in London, and I'd have two kids with me who I'm taking to the, you know, my my university's got a, a daycare, you know, a nursery, a kindergarten. So I'd be taking my kids on the subway in rush hour uh, to to this daycare, and it's kind of difficult to do because you have to entertain some children. So I would frequently entertain them by just getting on the tube, you know, sitting on the floor, pulling out a book, and just reading them a story, and. The fact that, you know, I'm sitting on a grubby floor was not really of any interest to me. I was quite like reading these stories. And uh, and I just really didn't care what people were thinking. And twice in the seven-year period that I was taking my children to, uh, to that daycare, twice I had people complain. Uh, both times very politely. <laughs> but when I, was get, when I was getting off, they... they you know, just as I was getting ready to go, they made their opinions very clear that I disrupted, I disrupted their tube journey by, uh, you know, by reading where the wild things are, you know, excitedly and voraciously, uh, while they were trying to think about something else. But <laughs> and maybe, maybe to a, to a certain extent that's selfishness, but to a large extent it's because you know here's here's an issue. I've got children. I need to take them to 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 the nursery and back. Uh, and I've got to solve that problem. And here's here's a solution which works. And uh, if other people think it's odd that there's a guy with funny trousers sitting on the floor of the tube reading stories, then uh, I mean, it's sort of who cares? I once I once met somebody at a party, and they looked at me and went, "You're the tube storyteller guy, aren't you?" <laughs> <laughs> I've seen you telling stories on the Piccadilly line. I'm like, I am that person. Yes. <laughs> He's very pleased to meet me. So there you go. When, when you have small children and you've got a job, you're, you know, you're just trying to cope. And uh, this was one way I coped. It was like, here's, let's solve this problem by just not caring what other people think and just, you know, or, or just, you know, or just asking for a seat. You know, I'm, I've got one in a, I've got one in a stroller, one in a pushchair, and I've got one on my back and I walk into a crowded tube, you know, and I just, and I just stand right next to somebody and then just stare down at them. <laughs> And they say, oh, do you want a seat? Yeah, yes, please. Yes, I would rather like a seat because, you know, I've rather got my hands on here. And then I sit down and then, you know, put one child on my lap, pull out a book. You know, I, the other thing is I've got, you know, the, book, the children's books are quite quick, right? You get, you get through one in like two, three minutes often. And so, you know, you've got a 25-minute commute. You need to take like 20 books, right? 10 for the journey there, 10 for the journey back. And these things are heavy. It's kind of funny. You have a kid, you've got the kid on the stroller and you put these books on the back and the stroller falls over. That's not good. <laughs> what you're supposed to do with children, you're supposed to treat them more carefully than that. So, so I, I did a lot of things. I mean, also, 
all, all dignity is lost in some sense when you have a child, right? Yes. Because you because you know they're just sometimes they do undignified things. You know, sometimes they puke on you, and that's just sort of the way of it. Or you know, or, or sometimes you know you want them to be somewhere, but they're somewhere else. I I gave I gave a forty five minute number theory lecture with a child asleep on my back at one point uh, because you know like they, the daycare wouldn't take him because he had conjunctivitis. It's like, you know, the daycare was like, he's not coming in here. I've got a lecture in 10 minutes, so it's okay. I'm going to give a lecture with this kid. But uh, fortunately, the kid had fallen asleep. So I, I spoke, basically, you know, I, I spoke until the child woke up. And when they woke up, they started screaming. And so then I said, okay, I think I'll just leave it there. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you, you have babies and then you do do less maths. It's kind of annoying. But that's how, but on the other hand, you've got babies. Your babies are great. They're really interesting. Well, I got interested in, you know, teaching computers mathematics. You you have to start by, you know, teaching computers everything. You have to teach the computers what the natural numbers are and, you know, how to add them up and things like this. And uh, you can just go through all of mathematics from first principles. And it's quite, you know, it's quite interesting. Things like finite sets are much harder than you think. Finiteness is an incredibly thorny concept. Uh, so when I had babies, I was just thinking just the same thing. I thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to understand humans from first principles because I've, I've just got this thing here that I'm essentially, you know, me and my partner in complete control of. And uh, if she's a surgeon, she was, you know, she's quite busy. Uh, so I spent a lot of time with these babies and thinking, this is just going to be, I'm going to understand humanity at the end of this. And six months later, you realise that they're vastly complex creatures that are somehow have learned things that you definitely never told them. And, and they're, they're somehow my plan to understand humans by watching my children grow up was completely it turned out not to work at all <laughs> i mean even, even understanding how kids learn to speak is very um hard right i mean i think i mean i haven't read research on this but i don't think that oh we have yeah we me and my partner threw ourselves into bringing up children quite seriously uh yeah the one thing we learned was that it's Apparently, it's a good idea just to talk to them like they're grown-ups. None of this gaga goo goo nonsense. No. And uh, yeah, you just talk. You just talk to them, and then they start talking back one day. It's kind of great. Yeah, I mean that it's a mystery. As far as I understand, it's a mystery how they learn to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, everything. Everything's a complete mystery. That the whole thing. That the whole thing is completely incomprehensible. Yeah. It's it's just don't don't bother trying to understand. Just go with it. You know. <laughs> It's, as, as well as being un- incomprehensible, it's interesting, right? So you don't have, you know, you're working on a maths problem, you're constantly trying to understand it. But whereas when, when you're playing with a child, you don't necessarily need to understand the child. You just need to kind of make sure that they're laughing, right? That's not, you know, as long, as long as you're entertaining them, then you're doing the right thing. Do you have other life hacks for how to combine raising three kids with being a researcher is it no it's a really difficult question it's um i mean just do less research because now there's other interesting things in your life that's my life hack that's what happened to me i don't know what your life is like but when i got when i got my first job i would go to i would go to work and i would spend nine to five doing administrative things keeping up with my email and writing lectures and doing marking and then when it got to five o'clock as far as i'm concerned that you know i was clocking off so now the fun could start so then I would just, you know, spend another six hours in the office doing research. And then when kids come along, you do work at Worktown, and then at 5.30, you've got to get to the daycare because uh, that's one, that, you know, that's the, that's the hardest deadline there is, right? 
if, if when the daycare closes, they can't, they can't just stick them on the sidewalk, right? They, you, they, you've got to be there to pick them up. Uh, so, so that little evening window, which I had, I also, I, I didn't live with my partner as well before we had kids. We moved in when she was eight months pregnant. We moved in together. Uh, I mean, that was just the way we chose to play it. We were just both living in different cities and were very busy people. Uh, so I very quickly lost you know, every weekday evening, it suddenly just suddenly just disappeared. Uh, and yeah, that the, the hack I discovered was uh, get get some fabulous graduate students, and then just give them all your interesting problems, uh, because that's a really good way of training. Yeah, a, a, a question that you kind of half know how to do, and sort of got some ideas, one of which will probably get somewhere. Right. This is a this is a perfect question for a graduate student. If you're busy, you 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 have to be selfless, right? You have to give the thing away. But but on the I, I, you know on the other hand, you, these new ba these babies kept appearing, and I kept falling in love with them. But I never fell out of love with mathematics. It was just you know something that had to the rate at which I was doing it just had to slow down for a few years. And, you know, and then, you know, back to computers again. Then what happened, you know, when I was finally at a position where I could stay late in the evenings again, uh, I started trying to catch up. And I realised that mathematics goes very quickly. <laughs> and if you've not been working at, you know, 110% uh, for, for 10 years because you've been bringing up children... Then all of a sudden you've got 10 years of catching up to do. I, I mean, I went through a small period where I kind of thought, I'm never going to catch up in number theory, and therefore I'm never going to write another interesting paper again in my life. Uh, but then I had this great idea that in fact, if you switch areas, <laughs> if you switch areas to a much more, a much more primitive area in which, you know, in which there's been far less research done, because I, you know, number theory, I don't know if the computer, again, if the computer scientists realize this, but you know, the whole area of so computer proof checking and things like this. It's somehow dwarfed by the thousands of years of, uh, of work we have you know, in number theory. Number theory is a terrifyingly large thing. So I moved into really what was a much smaller area. And I, then I found that within two years, I could start writing interesting papers again. <laughs> because I didn't have to. So that's another hack as well. Completely change your area to a much, to a much newer one. There you go. That's, that's something else you could try. It might not work for everyone. Worked worked for me. Usually people struggle with changing the area. I, I felt when I was trying to get back into number theory that, you know, maybe I was just, I, I thought maybe I'm just old. Maybe I'm too old to catch up. Maybe I'm old and slow. And, you know, everyone says, math, you know, mathematics is a young person's game, right? You've heard this. I don't think this is true at all. Uh, I think this is just, this is a convenient excuse, I think. I, I, I know plenty of people. I know plenty of people that were, you know, been capable of having revolutionary idea after revolutionary idea, or you know, proving that, you know, struggling through and proving that that big theorem that we've been waiting for. And this, this is just a lie. Mathematics is a young person's game. All that happens is, as you get older, you you know, you end up on more committees, right? That's, you end up with more, you know, more childcare and more things to do. It's not like maths has got any harder. It's just you're you're busy doing other things. That's what I think, anyway. <laughs> but yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't catch up with ten years of number theory, so I, so I switched area. But the the problem is the the area of number theory I work in work you know goes pretty quickly. 
This is another thing my advisor told me. If you want to learn, if you want to learn an area, then you should choose a problem in the area and work on the problem, right? This is that because you know, just sort of reading, reading the books and at the end thinking, oh, that's good. Now I'm an expert. Yeah, that's one thing. But if you actually want to further your career, you should just so- solve a problem, solve a problem in an area. This is somehow, this is this is the best way to learn an area. But my advisor, he tended to solve the hardest problem in the area when he wanted to learn an area. This is this was his technique. But uh, you know, I I I tried to solve simple problems. Like when I was away being a dad, you know, Peter Schultzer invented or discovered perfectoid spaces. And then I realized I was going to have to learn about them. So what did I do? I wrote a paper about, about perfectoid spaces uh, with, a, with a Dutch banker who I just knew, who wasn't a mathematician. <laughs> have you ever written papers with people that aren't mathematicians? It's great. It's great fun. I'm a, that, that's a, yeah, it's a hobby of mine. <laughs> I, I wrote a paper with a Dutch high school kid who I'd never met before in my life. Uh, which was interesting, and, and I wrote a paper with a, you know, someone with a PhD in physics who's a, uh, who's who now works in a bank because they they were interested in mathematics. I I wonder whether my daughter that she was the bottleneck, right? Because she was the youngest one, and uh, when she when she started going to school by herself, uh, this was when I started started being able to stay late at work and this is when I started running an undergraduate club teaching undergraduates how to um how to you know how to use these computer proof systems and I named it after my daughter because my daughter I my daughter found mathematics extremely difficult and she clearly was interested in it to a certain extent and she did want to do well in it she she didn't just want to throw it away and give it up but she found it extremely difficult and as part of, you know, I, we noticed this at a very young age that my daughter didn't have the, you know, sort of, a, sort of a, an innate ability to do mathematics. And that really began to make me think very, try to really understand why that was the case. For example, my daughter could not really learn her times tables at a point in when her peers were learning her, when they were learning times tables. And I spent some time kind of wrestling with why it was the case that my daughter simply couldn't remember that seven fours were 28. And at the end of the wrestling, what I'd found was that in some sense, I was no that I was none the wiser as to why my daughter couldn't learn it. But I was really beginning to question myself as to what the hell the point was teaching young children that seven fours are 28. And this is this is something else that came out of having, especially coming out of having a child that was not particularly interested or or able when it came to, I mean, she's extremely able at lots of other things. She's, she's an incredibly talented person. She's an amazing artist, for example. Uh, but the fact that she wasn't interested in, she, she just didn't get mathematics in the way I got it. Maybe start wondering, I mean, she's never going to need. She's just she's just spent a year learning about sines and cosines, and now that's done. She's passed the exam, and she will never have to think about mathematics again for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. And and in a few years' time, she'll have probably forgotten. I mean, she did learn her times tables in the end, but in a few years' time, she might well have forgotten what seven fours are again. And 
I don't think that that's going to be a problem for her at all, not least because she's got a device in her pocket that can work out 93, 480, you know, 482 instantly. Right? She, doesn't, she doesn't need to know these things. So, so somehow bringing up my children made me realise that, in fact, why do we... I, this is a very dangerous thing to say, but I'm, I'm going to say, why do we even teach all people mathematics up to the age of wherever, you know, 18 or something? This, after a while, especially the way technology has moved on, my daughter has a phone, right? Just like it, you know, just like many other people. And this phone has a calculator app. And so why do we teach humans how to do calculator? She had to do an exam where she specifically was not allowed to use a calculator or a computer. I mean, we should teach them to think logically and rationally. That's really important because you need to be able to think rationally to distinguish news from fake news. You need to be able to start asking yourself, you know, somebody has told me this thing, is it actually true? You know, I'm not talking about a mathematical thing, I'm talking about real life facts. If people are saying, well, maybe you shouldn't get the vaccine, you, know, you, you need to be able to be, you need to be able to evaluate both sides of an argument and come up with some logic, you know, come up with some logical decision as to what you're going to do. You know, thinking logically is incredibly important. But but thinking logically and learning your times tables seem to me to be two extremely different things. And, and it my daughter really made me completely reevaluate my opinions on you know what what we should be teaching young children. In particular, I, I'm not entirely convinced that we should have been teaching my daughter her times tables. Uh, I think there's plenty of mathematics that we could be teaching her without forcing her to do rote learning of something for which there are tools. Like, what? You did exams, right? You, you did exams when you were an undergraduate. And were you allowed to look at the books during the exams? Why, why do we do that? <laughs> Because, like in real life, you're allowed to look at the books. It's sort of a, it's sort of a funny thing. It's forcing you to to learn something which you don't actually have to learn because you can just see it in the book. Why why do we do that? That's what having that's what having children did to me. It made me look at the education system. I just wonder whether the reason it's done is because it, we've always done it like that. But so much has changed in the last, you know, the the advent of the smartphone, the internet, and the smartphone has completely changed everything. I'm, I'm teaching a new course. I'm teaching a course, and there's certainly not going to be a closed book exam at the end of it. It's going to be, I'm going to examine the whole thing on projects. I think projects are great. I'm just going to give them little projects throughout the term. You know, they've got two, three weeks to do it. And then I'm just going to read them all, and I'm going to write what I think about it. Because, you know, there's no time. Some people don't work well under time pressure. So, you know, that's great. That's them sort of that. You know, some people just, some people's brains just aren't very good at stuffing in a whole load of random information and then keeping it for a small period of time and then splurging it all out on the page in a two or three hour period and, and then walking away and thinking, oh, that's good. I can just, you know, completely forget that. It's, it's, it's a very funny way of doing it. It's a very funny way of teaching. On the other hand, of course, there's plenty of evidence that it works, right? <laughs> that's, like, that's the problem. <laughs> forcing, forcing students into this artificial situation that they will never be in in real life, i.e., you know, no access to books or the internet, and then making them do the questions anyway. Uh, in fact, to be quite honest, that's been one of the best things about lockdown. That's that it's completely changed the way we set the exams at our university because um, 
because you would often ask questions like, well, you know, what you know, you're, you're you're teaching subject X, and you you know, one question is going to be about definition D, and the first part of it is, you know, define definition D, you know. Do, you know, say what this means, and you know, prove these completely basic things, which are in all the books. You know, just 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 as a warm up to make sure that every student gets five points or whatever. You know, it gets gets twenty percent of the points of this question. But since lockdown, everyone was doing their exams at home, and there was no. We weren't going to try policing it to make them not look at their textbooks. So we just said, well, okay, you can look at your textbooks now, and that now completely changes the way that you do exams. You, you set the exams because you now you can't ask the moronic questions, you know the questions which say regurgitate this, regurgitate this material which I explained in the lectures because then they would just literally copy it out of your notes. So I think this has been a really good thing. It's been much harder to set exams because you've had to be much more innovative. You're constantly coming up with new questions, and you can't fall back on the old. Oh, let's just give them one question where they just copy out some theorem from the course. It's I, yeah, that, that's been. That's been a good thing. It's made my university reevaluate, you know, what an exam is. And then I came along and said, well, you know, I want to give a new course. I want to teach about computer theory improvers and I don't want there to be exams. And they've been like, yeah, okay, that's fine. <laughs> you know, I, I think I think five years ago I, that might not have happened. But be, because because the pandemic had caused so much disruption already. Yeah. You know, yeah, so, I think it's why not why not rethink the way we teach? I mean, this is somehow what I'm trying to do at the minute. I'm trying to I'm trying to rethink the way. Yeah, I teach. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the whole school education, at least where I grew up, is quite conservative. Uh -huh. mm. So, Kevin, since you mentioned already the students and the new situation for them, let me ask you for the end. Is there any advice you would give to students, especially in these times? Undergraduates? For example. Oh, there's no point giving advice to them. Students don't listen to old people. They just listen to each other. <laughs> so the, you know, there, there is an answer to the question, but it's of no relevance. So there you go. G generic, generic wise student advice statements that they can read elsewhere. That's, that's my advice. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Students are too busy doing other things. It's, one thing one thing I've really enjoyed in my new in my, my new life is I spend a I spend a lot of time I spend a lot of time with students and and my children as well are at the same age as my undergraduates now. And so I have some sort of insight into the kind of things that these students are doing when they're not doing mathematics, you know, the kind of you know TV they're watching or the, the you know the you know the, the websites they're looking at. And uh yeah, I just think I think they're fine. I think students should just keep doing what they're doing. And yeah, just talk to each other. That's the that's the important thing. <laughs> yeah, don't don't listen to grown ups. It, the, the 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 big problem with grown ups is that they have a view of the world which was formed. You know, if I if I tell a twenty year old what they should be doing, that's based on what I would have been doing. You know, when I was twenty. But the thing is, the world has changed so much since then that my opinions are of no relevance. I'm not going to say to students, well, you should find out where the library is, because I spent a lot of time in there. You know, it's, I think it's a terrible piece of advice. You know, of course, students should continue to just get stuck on something and then Google it or just ask in a forum. You know, those, those opportunities weren't there for me, but that's absolutely a really, a really good way of learning. You know, you should have big, big Discord or WhatsApp groups where people can ask questions. Yeah, okay, my, Kevin, then another final question for you. Since you don't want to give advice, why do you wear such colourful, cool pants? Oh, it's my partner. 
she just buys them for me. She's just, it's, I don't know. She, my, I, te- I tend to do what I'm told. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my, my partner just said, yeah, I was wearing colourful clothes. And she was just like, would you wear really colourful clothes? And I'm like, yeah, because I don't really care what people think. And so then she bought me some ridiculous trousers. And I would just happily wear these trousers. And, uh, you know, I would just wear them to work. I'd wear them to meetings and, you know. No one said anything. And, you know, I, I live in London, which is quite a liberal city. I mean, you see, if I'd done that in the village where I'd been brought up, you know, I'd be people hurling abuse at me, maybe, calling, you know, calling me a weirdo. This is, but I walk around London and the only people that ever say anything to me are people that give me compliments on my trousers. So, you know, so. Ah. <laughs> I've got a particularly nice pair of trousers on right now that you're completely unable to see. But uh, the, but the reason for that is because now I only own colourful trousers. It's this is uh, so th- this this is problematic at funerals, but actually it's, it's it's not that problematic because a lot a lot of the I mean the the people that are dying right now are the people sort of the generation above me. So my mother's you know, my mother's era. I you know you aunts dying and things like this, and uh, on both sides of the family. But but these people tend to quite like my trousers. So I don't feel too bad about going to their funeral in my stupid trousers, uh, which is sort of what I've been doing, really. You know, I, Marks and Spencers have stopped selling suits or at least half the branches. I, suits are, you know, these colourful trousers are the future, right? That's the, that's it's definitely, it's fine. Wear colourful trousers. <laughs>